So, we're going to uh, continue our study in Acts. So if you have your Bible out, we're going to jump into Acts 15 in just a couple minutes. Um, but, uh, yeah, we have lots to cover here. And an interesting topic, just go on just a little bit, there we go, that guy. And we're going to talk about conflict in the church. We're going to talk about conflict. Do you ever have conflict? Have you had conflict this week? Uh, maybe a little bit. <laughs> Did you have conflict this morning on the way to church? Some of you, it seems like that's a good time to have a nice tiff with one's spouse or somebody who's a loved one. Um, that can play out. We're going to dig into that in just a little bit. Um, but let's, let's just open in prayer before we dig into this. Father, you care about your church. You care about this church here at Mosaic. We thank you that you, uh, in your incredible sovereign will, decided to make your bride to be a powerful force in this world. And yet, uh, even in spite of that, we, we kind of shoot ourselves in their own foot for the way that we handle things, the way we address each other, the way we do relationships. And so, Lord, today we pray that your word become just so powerful and mighty that it would be that double-edged sword that would just cut us to the core and we would see what you have to say to us through your word. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so today, brothers and sisters, we are going to talk here about, um, about conflict. But before we do that, let's just say, what, what are we discovering so far about this study and why are we studying Acts? Uh, we decided to study Acts because we felt like this church is at a crossroads. There's a transition point. Our founding pastors, all of you know, left here about uh, three and a half months ago. And it gave us time as elders and deacons to really wrestle with what is the essence of Mosaic? What are we about? What's the purpose of this church? And we thought one of the best ways of going about that would be to actually look at the book of Acts where the church starts and see what, is, what did God have in mind, and what are the stories there that would in some way relate to us as a body. And so that's what we've been digging into so far, and what we've learned is that Jesus had a very significant vision for his bride, the church. And he had ideas like this, that number one, it was, oh my goodness, why does it do that? Um, what we've seen this far is, oh, boy, that's really interesting. I wonder why it looks like that. Well, number one, you don't see it there. I think it's in the words, letters right behind that. But it says it, it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1 and 2 talks about that. Jesus promised and said, hang on here in Jerusalem. I got something really powerful for you. And then chapter 2, the Holy Spirit arrives in power. So as a result of that, this church, this body, all of us are empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when we become a believer in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And, and, and with that... We, we, we no longer believe in the fact that it's human grit that gets us through life anymore, right? We try sometimes to do that. Maybe we do that too much. But you'll never find a church that's the church of human grit, right? There's just no point to it because we know we would just be toast if we do that because we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us to choose rightly, to act rightly, to live out his power and love within our life. So that's one of those things. Number two, it provides fellowship and care for its own, chapters two and four. Boy, that's really, boy, we're really seeing some weird things here. <laughs> Read that one, would you? 
And that's why I bring this with me. It is an evangelizing body to the lost, not just an insular body. So we, we care for each other. We provide fellowship and we care for our own. But we're not just saying, hey, how do we take care of each other? We're always with an eye towards outside of the church. We know we have an answer to the world's deepest problem, right? It's called the sin problem. Every one of us was born into this unfortunate experience of a sin nature, which makes me want to do the very thing that I don't want to do. Well, actually, it makes me do the thing I do want to do, which is get my way. I want my way to be preeminent, right? Yesterday, we were experiencing that with our grandson as he was playing and having lots of fun, and then his mama picked him up and said, we're going to now go over here and we're going to do something else now. And he just screamed bloody murder. He just, Wah! Right? That's his will. I want my way. I want to stay doing that. Don't stop me from doing what I want to do. And we're all sadly like that, right? That's that sinful, selfish nature that we existed, what Paul calls the flesh. And it's there, but we have an answer for that, and it's called Jesus, Right? Jesus changes all that. Let's try a number two. So that's great. So that's one of the things that we that uh, Jesus called his church to. Um, and it patiently endures, uh, number one, impatiently endures persecution and thrives, chapters 5 through 8, 12, 13, and 14, all talk about persecution. The church experiences persecution, and yet it doesn't just dwindle and go away. If anything, it blossoms and thrives. Persecution has a way of drawing us closer to Jesus, and that's what happened to the body. I think that's going to happen, and perhaps in our lifetime, even more. We also learned that uh, in terms of, of what this church is, is that it's a body made up of all genders, ages, and nations. You may remember in chapter 2, all these people were in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Weeks. Anybody remember that name, the Feast of the Weeks? What was the name of it in Hebrew? Shavuot. They were there for Shavuot, so he had people from all these countries, from Cappadocia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Cilicia and all these places, and they heard the gospel and they turned to Christ. And all of a sudden there was an explosion of the church because all these wee people went back to their synagogues and said, what incredible Savior we have in Jesus Christ. So he had people from all over the countries, but up until that point, the church was, was largely a Jewish thing. Right? It was in synagogues. It was among Jewish people. So it was all nations, but it was really a particular kind of person in each of those places. It was Jewish people until what we heard over the last two chapters, the last two sermons, was that Paul and Barnabas went out and had their first missionary journey. 46 to 48 AD, um, and I'm clicking this for no apparent reason. Um, <laughs> looking up there, I keep seeing mosaic. At that point, all of a sudden, even though they went to the Jews first, they would go to the synagogue and they would preach, but then Gentiles would say, wow, this is a pretty cool gospel. And so all of a sudden, over the course of that span of time, as they went from Pamphylia up to Iconium and down to Lystra and over to Derbe, you had Gentile believers becoming, you had Gentiles becoming believers. And the interesting thing across that span of time was the fact that they immediately received the Holy Spirit. 
they became believers right away. And they, so Paul and Barnabas come back, they retrace their steps through all those towns. They, no, actually, I'm sorry, they started in Cyprus, came back over to Antioch, and everybody praised God because of what had happened. The gospel of Jesus Christ was powerful and it was changing lives. Certainly Jewish, Jewish folks became believers in those towns too, but Gentiles did. But that created a problem, didn't it? Because now people are saying, wait a minute, our faith is based on Moses. It's based on Abraham. It involves becoming a Jewish person first. You're saved by becoming a part of the Jewish family first and foremost. And then we add on Jesus. And that's where we pick up today, chapter 15. And there's some problems with that, isn't there? That's the context of what's happened so far. So, some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed among the others believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So big, big deal, right? They came back, we're all excited. It's Jews and, and Gentiles that are falling in love with Jesus and is falling under the submission of and surrendering to Jesus. And isn't that awesome? But people are saying, no, 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 no. You gotta follow the Mosaic Covenant. If you wanna be truly saved, you gotta do both, right? And that's... This is, this, is, uh, this is actually, if you look at Galatians, it's the same story in Galatians 2. Same one. Um, and so it's a big deal. It is a really big deal in the church. Um, interestingly enough, when you look at Acts, this is only the second conflict that shows up. We're now in chapter 15. 14 chapters have, only, have gone by. This is only the second conflict that has happened that Luke takes note of in the church. The first one was in... Um, you want me to go now through this? There we go. Excellent. Thank you, brothers. I appreciate it. All right, so there's their first missionary journey. Traveled all this way, came back to Antioch, and boom, there we go. All right. First related conflict was when Peter met with Cornelius. Everything was hunky-dory, but that was a real significant change, right? Peter met with this Gentile guy and a lot of his family members, and they believed and received the Holy Spirit right away. Boom. And a lot, of the, a lot of the believers at that point in Jerusalem said, I don't think that's good. Peter, first of all, you shouldn't even go into his house. He's a Gentile. You should not have gone across the threshold into his house. That wasn't okay. You really were, were botching it here, Peter. And Peter says, but I heard a Jesus talking to me in a vision. And he said, it's all okay. These Gentile folks are supposed to join me. This old Mosaic covenant, I think it's changing, guys. I, I saw this vision of, an, of, of a blanket filled with all kinds of unclean items, and the vision of the Lord said to me, take and eat. How am I supposed to make sense of that other than the fact that this covenant, the old covenant under Moses, is changing? And there was a dispute about that, but in the end, they agreed, this is probably about 10 years earlier, that it was okay for Gentiles to become believers, number one, and that they could receive the Holy Spirit, yep, that had already happened, and that somehow things were changing. That was okay, but, and that maybe the Mosaic Covenant was changing, but now we're back into this issue again as Paul just had this first missionary journey with, with Barnabas. One of the things I appreciate about this, um, this is Cornelius and Peter, 
It's, I love the fact that as the, as the people who are writing the Bible, they don't stop when it gets to the kind of foible-y stuff, right? The, the stuff where it's like the warts of the church are playing out. Luke captures in this chapter two conflicts, one held and, and managed very well, one resolved very well from my vantage point, and one not so much. But rather than saying, hey, the church grew and isn't that awesome and everything was hunky-dory and then there was persecution, but they always tra- tra- you know, travailed, Luke captures the warts and faults of believers because he knows we're full of warts and faults, right? We, have, we struggle in life, right? We have flesh that we're still dealing with. And the reality is we can relate to this because we deal with conflict, don't we? We know what it's like to be in the throes of a significant conflict with somebody we love. Maybe a group of people is struggling with that. And here we have it again. Two conflicts, one handled pretty darn well and the other one not so well. And so we're going to talk about those two different ones. But what I'd like to do is to suggest there's two ways of coming about this. As I was thinking about this, how do you cover both the content elements and the process elements? And that's what I'd like to talk about. First of all, the content is the what. Usually when somebody's up preaching here, we look at the what. What does it say? What does it say? What does it say? What does it mean? It's about epistemology, about knowing what is truly right. right? How do I know this is true? How do I know that's just opinion? How do we know things? And so we look at Scripture and try to sense, okay, what is God trying to teach us here? But there's a process side to things too, Right? There's the how it went. The means by which a, a message is delivered or it's, a, it's how the relational elements occur in the process. So you can get the content just right. I can say to you, um, you really look fat in that dress. That probably would not be good process, however, would it? And the message that I'm trying to convey would not go through. Or I could say to you, um, let me see, I think I won right now. Um, you really need to get a hold of your attitude, and because right now your attitude stinks, and it's time for you to change that right now. And that would probably, in some situations, be true, right? Or I can come along and say, hey, bud, let me tell you how your attitude is affecting me and some other people, and I'm guessing that's not what you're hoping to accomplish, but it is right now. And I would wonder if you'd be willing to look at me with what, look with me as to what's happening. And maybe tell me what's happening inside your heart because I think some things are playing out here that you're not intending. Could we just talk about that now? Which way is somebody more willing to hear the message? Probably the second way, right? Content and process. For those in the social work field, you go, yeah. So we're going to talk about what was the big deal with these Judaist believers and uh, who kept pushing Moses. What was their deal, right? We've heard this a number of times. Why wouldn't they give it up? Why did they say, you got to follow the Judaist customs? You got to be circumcised. You have to follow the law of Moses. And, uh, and just remember that their, their scripture was that, right there. That's all they had. They didn't have this part. They just had that part, Right? That's all they knew. And that said, if you wanted to be right with God, you had to be part of the Jewish family, right? And you had to follow the law of Moses. That was part and parcel of being a religious person. Yeah, Jesus paid it all. Yep, okay, we get that. But then how do you live? You live it. 
all these 632, 13 commandments that's in the Old Testament. We need to abide by that. That's part of living the Christian faith. Yes, it's a Jewish faith, but it's part of now how we do religious life because it always was, that wasn't just a temporary thing. They understood that. So you understand where they're coming from? And they had verses like Genesis 13, Genesis 17, 13, and 14. They knew those verses, right? They said, an everlasting covenant is going to be the sign in your flesh. Every male, not just the Jewish people, but anybody in your, in your household, non-Jewish people yeah, that are in your household, need to be circumcised if they're a male. And then they also had Exodus 12, 48 and 49. Thank you. Very clear. This is, now, this is now in the Mosaic Covenant. What Cheryl read was, was what... Uh, uh, what God told Abraham, Abram at that time. And so there was real clear definition about some of this stuff, right? This is what you must do. It's what, we, what they understood. And if you re, uh, read Leviticus, Leviticus 26, the first half of the chapter is, if you follow all these 613 commands, all of them, and you keep your eyes on me, you're going to be blessed. And here's all the wonderful things that will happen to you in, in this nation of Israel. But halfway through, it says, if you stop obeying all these commands, let me tell you about what's going to happen to you and your crops and your people and your animals, and it ain't going to be pretty. Really, really clear. So again, that's, that's what they understood. That's what they understood. And so these folks are, are wrestling with this notion of how in the world do we, what do we do with Jesus, right? And what he did on the cross and what do we do with this old covenant stuff that was so important, which to them wasn't so old yet, right? It was, it was still very recent. And they defined it this way in chapter, uh, verse five, it says, they got up some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Remember we talked about the Pharisees a few weeks ago. Those are the ones who believed every one of those laws in the covenant, but then they added lots more on top of it because they interpreted those laws different ways. And so they probably added a few extra hundreds of people. And, and Paul was one of those Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Period. End of discussion. If you want to be a Christian, you still got to follow all this Jewish stuff that we've been doing for centuries and centuries. That's the issue at stake. I'm guessing most of us don't follow 632 commands, 613 commands in the Old Testament. I don't hear us talking a whole bunch about that. So either you're all going to hell or we got a hold of something new. <laughs> I think there's something else. But there's a deeper story at work about being right with God. If you're a C.S. Lewis fan and you love the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, there's a deeper magic. There's a deeper magic. There's a deeper story of God's redemption. And it's this. Interestingly enough, before that uh, Genesis 17... God is talking with Abraham, Abram at that time, is before he became Abraham, and God is promising him, this is what I'm going to do for you. It is an eternal covenant between you and me. And, and in fact, he ends up saying, if, if I don't follow this, here's what's going to happen to me. And you remember the smoking pot and the, and the, and the fire that went through the, all these cut up animals. And he said, be it, so be it to me if I don't follow this covenant, if I don't uphold my covenant with you, Abraham, this is what's going to happen to me. And the interesting thing right there in, in, verses, uh, in verse 6, oh, somebody has that? 
Abram believed the Lord and it was credit to him as righteousness. Right there. Abram didn't become a good guy and follow all kinds of rules. This is way before Moses. He believed God and God's provision for him, his promise to him, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He got righteous, stamped all over his, his card, right? Righteous. And that's what happened to him. Interestingly enough, if you thought about what, what made Abram the first Jew? I mean, think about it. What, what made him special? Of all the people that God could choose and say, I'm going to start a family of people that, through whom I'm going to bring the Messiah? There was nothing. He was just an Urian, right? He was a Chaldean. He was just a regular dude who God said, for whatever reason, I'm going to extend grace to you and I'm going to bring out of you an enormously cool story. Grace. Just grace. Not grace at Christ's expense, as some of you know it, but just grace right there. And, and Abram believed God and credited to him as righteousness. Interestingly enough, in, is, would somebody read Matthew 5, 17? That's Jesus talking. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill them through my life, my death, and my resurrection. That's the bigger story that the Jewish believers weren't understanding, is that Jesus came not just to not just to die for our sins there in, in a certain way and cover some of this, but he was the fulfillment of the law. Fulfillment of the law entirely. And then we go on to see what, what, is, what does Peter have to say here in response to these believers. Now, it's not Pharisees, right? They're, they're, they're believers who happen to also belong to, to Pharisees. So they're, they're wrestling with this. And Peter stands up and he says this in, in chapter 6. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. He's talking about what happened maybe about 10 years ago with Cornelius, right? God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them on the spot. They didn't have to change. They didn't get circumcised. On the spot, they received God's Holy Spirit. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by what? By faith. By faith, not by doing the works of the law. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. It is by the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved just as we are. That's what, right? That's where it's at, right? That is where it's at. It's not by doing something to your flesh, guys. It's not by following all 613 rules. It's that. James then goes on to affirm that. So Peter talks. Um, Paul and Barnabas get up and share what has happened to verify that, in fact, these new Gentile believers in that area that is now present-day Turkey had become believers and had immediately received the Holy Spirit. And then he, James gets up and he says this, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to, how, to, to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophecy are in agreement with this as it is written. And he describes um, some verses out of, out of uh, Amos that talk about how Gentiles will be part of the family of God. 
And then he says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In fact, the word difficult, making it difficult, is to annoy them. There's no point in annoying them because, he said, instead, we should just write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues and every Sabbath. There was a part of me that just wanted to jump over those verses to say, why, why did he choose those things? Um, in reading some commentaries, here's the sense that I, that I get from that. Why did James say, of all the things that Gentile believers should do, here are the things that should be done. In fact, it's, it's repeated in the next uh, couple chapters. And I think it's because of this. Number one, there's a moral code that we continue to live under that wasn't abolished by Jesus. There is a moral code. And we know what that moral code is. God says he's written his truth on our hearts, right? We know what he demands of us, expects of us. And we are to follow that. And that relates to every area of our life, including our sexuality. And there's a way that we are to live that out and not to live that out. He speaks to that. That continues. That is not something that is designed to change. But he also talks about food polluted, polluted by idols. And he talks also about this notion of strangled animals in the blood. And those last two, strangled animals in the blood, we go, what's the big deal? I don't get that. But throughout the Old Testament, there's this notion of you don't eat animals that have their lifeblood in them. When you strangle an animal, it's supposed to graphic, you know, a little, little piece here. You cut their throat, you hang them up by their, by their back uh, legs, and you let the blood just run out of them. That's how it was supposed to be done. But strangled animals, the life blood is still in them, and that's not okay to do that. You shouldn't eat the blood is what, again, consistently in the Old Testament was something there. That, those two items, I think, were a function of not offending your Jewish brothers and sisters. And that's the point he makes there with that last verse in verse 21 where he says, For Moses has been preached in, in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So we're not going to do things where you have fellow Jewish believers that are going to go, oh, don't do that, right? There's no sense in, in, in offending your brothers and sisters by eating blood sausage, right? I'm trying to think of something that where, you, where you would eat a strangled animal or if you eat food polluted by idols. The intent is not to offend a weaker brother and not to offend or unnecessarily somebody. And so James says, just don't do that. But he affirms the message that our, it is our by grace that we are saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the content piece of this. It's an affirmation of grace, an ongoing moral code, and a code of code of care for one's neighbor. We don't have to abide by the Mosaic law anymore. We entrust in, instead in the faith that we have in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. But let's spend a little bit of time now spending time looking at the process. How did this conflict play out? And maybe there's something for us as we experience conflict, right? Because are we immune from conflict here at Mosaic? No, <laughs> it happens. It happens in our lives individually, and it can happen in the church. And the last thing we want to do is have conflict play a significant role where other people are harmed, their faith is, is in any way um, impacted by that negatively. So let's spend a little bit of time looking at that, going back to very early on. Number one, we see that Paul and Barnabas determined that this is a big deal. we got to talk about this. There'd be some issues, I'm guessing, they said that's not so big. 
you know, that's probably not an essential of our doctrine. But when these folks came into the church at Antioch, they started poking at a very significant issue, which was it's not just faith by, or salvation by faith. It's salvation by faith plus works. And they said, nope, that is not true. So they had to determine, they had to have the discernment to say, this is one of those times where we're going to deal with that. And in fact, it says there was a sharp disagreement, uh, dispute between Paul and, Paul and Barnabas and these other folks that were saying that. Sometimes it's worth saying, no, that's not right. But you, big, you, you spend your time and you pray real carefully to say, is this one of those times? Number two, they decided to involve key apostles and the elders in the matter. It says that, so Paul and Barnabas, this is verse 2, um, were appointed among, uh, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem to, to the apostles and elders about this question. So they involved other people. Lest we think that this is just my opinion, your opinion, and we can disagree. No, we better appeal to a higher authority here, which is a good thing to do sometimes, right? On big issues of significance and, and, uh, that are material. Thirdly, the issue was clearly stated. So let's define what the issue is. Let's be real clear. And actually, I think the, the Judaist believers did a fine job of that. They said in verse 5, here's the issue. And they said it in, in, the, in the negative here. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Boom. That's the issue. That's what we've been wrestling about. Let's be real clear about that. Let's not be fuzzy. Let's identify the issue and be, so that we're all understanding what it is. But then it, they discussed the problem and solution in depth. They didn't just go, yeah, let's take a quick vote. It says in verse 6 there, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, they talked about it a lot. They bantied, bantered it about for quite a while. And before they came up with a solution, I'm sure they prayed about it a lot. It doesn't say that, but we can probably imply that they did that. They made sure we talked about it. And the interesting thing is, Peter was a part of that conversation. The very same Peter who God had given him that vision, and he went over to Cornelius, and he met with them, and he saw exactly what had happened. The whole issue from his vantage point had been resolved sometime before, probably years before. And he could have said, before we get going, guys, why are we even talking about this? Did you forget my vision? Did you forget my conversation with Cornelius? You can go talk to Cornelius. You can see he's an incredible believer. He, he and his household. Why are we talking about this again? But he allowed the conversation to happen. He didn't rush the decision. He allowed that to happen. And I think that was incredible wisdom for how you handle a conflict. Let's, let's really put the pieces out there. Let's allow that to happen. And there was patience demonstrated on his part. Let's keep going. What else happened? They focused on what God has done and or is doing, not my feelings. It's so easy for us to want to go to, this is how I feel about it. I, I, this, 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 is my, this is my feelings, as opposed to saying, what has God done? What can we clearly point to as it relates to what God is about? And so he, he shares here in verses 7 to 9, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my own lips um, the message of the gospel and belief. So he reminds them, God did do that. That was real, and I saw what happened. God, who knows the heart and showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit tip, don't forget, they did that. He gave the Holy Spirit right away as an indication, right? That they are true believers, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, Jewish, 
and Gentile believers. This is all for real. But then he says, uh, it's, they, in terms of the process, they spoke to what they knew to be true about their salvation. And this is where Peter says very clearly, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Boom, mic drop, that's it. That's what our salvation is based on, right? Right there, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the interesting thing was they didn't just drop it and say, Anybody who believes it, you know, this old mosaic stuff, would you just go away? He didn't do that. James got up, who is a Jew. Peter is who is a Jew. Paul and Barnabas, all the Jews. They, 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 as a group of believers, said, we have to deal with this issue. What is, seems right? What makes sense to deal with the fact that there are concerns here? That if people, that if Gentile believers don't do these things or do do these things, that there's going to be problems in our midst in the church. So might there be ways that we need to be sensitive and be clear about what about the Old Testament still follows it to this day? And so they address that in those verses in verse 20. So here's what you should do and what you shouldn't do. So there's a sensitivity to those believers. But, but then after that, they go on and send Paul and Barnabas, but they also choose two other people to go back to Antioch where this all started, they send Judas and Silas along with them so that it's not just Paul and Barnabas who were portraying one side of the story. They sent two other guys with them to say, this is all of us who, are, who are, have this message for you for how we do that. That's wise, right? It's not just, we're, we're not just singling out one person who has one side of the story. We're making sure there's a plethora of, of, of people who are describing what needs to happen. And that's what they did. They went and shared that letter with them. And the result was what? Verse 31, it says, Jude, uh, excuse me, the men who sent, were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. And those are both Jewish and Gentile believers up in Antioch, right? There they were to hear about that. Pretty cool, isn't it? Content was good process was good. In the end, people were, were encouraged by the message. They could live their life. They felt like they were clear about this doctrine of do we live by faith or do we live by faith plus works? And that was cleared up quite clearly at that point. Now we can fall back into problems, can't we? We can still want to ourselves want to get back into adding some works and showing God that really I am that special kind of guy, right? I can do this. I can do this. Look at me and notice, notice that, Father, that I did this as opposed to no, no, I just trust in your grace. That's all I need. Interestingly enough, there's some other things here I'd like to, to share with you, some extra credit aspects of conflict resolution. And I just throw these out to you. If you're having a conflict with somebody in your, in your world today, or, or will be shortly, humility, humility, humility is key, right? Whenever my conflict with somebody goes on in an extended way, almost invariably, it's because of my pride. I think I'm right. I think I'm, I'm so right that I'm just going to sort of barrel over you instead of doing what Jesus says. Get the log or the plank out of your own eye first. Right? This sense of utter humility that says, look at yourself first. What am I doing wrong? Before I point any fingers at you, I'm going to make sure I look long and hard as to my spirit and what's going on and what I'm doing what I'm doing wrong, humility, oops, sorry, but also be quick to listen, slow to speak, and, and slow to become angry, from James 2.19, and I mentioned this idea of, of clarifying and reflecting, if all of us 
were to say, when I'm sensing something's going on between me and somebody else, to say, this is what I heard you say, this is where I was going down a path of trying to understand that, would, would you just help me understand what you meant by that when you said those words, or when I saw you do this, that's how I interpreted your behavior? And I'm going to a dark place because of that, and I don't want that to happen between you and me. Can we just talk about that? So clarifying, reflecting, and part of that is this notion of a suicide. My sense is that almost any conflict, almost anyone, is because I look at your behavior, I hear your words, and I make assumptions about what you mean, and invariably I'm wrong. So rather than clarifying, I just go down this angry, why did you say that? that, that, that you didn't have to say that to me. That makes no sense. Why, oh man, you must be blah, 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 right? And we get into this place and all of a sudden we have this great gulf between you and me because I assumed instead of going to you and saying, could you help me understand that? Humility. Can you help me understand that? I think I'm going to, it's probably me that I'm misun, that, that's misunderstanding. Could you just help me understand Assume aside and expectations. The other one are expectations. I expect you to do this. I expect you to do that. And if you don't do any of those things, there's going to be heck to pay because you're not following through with my expectations. People have that in relationships. People have that with their organizations. People have that in churches, right? If the, my church doesn't do this, then I'm out of here. As opposed to saying, can we talk about those expectations that you have? Can we just work through those together? Let's look at what Scripture has to say. Does this, any, does this have anything to do with what God would want us to be wrestling with? That might be a good expectation. We don't know. Let's talk about it and sort it out together. And those are the kinds of things that I think are so key for handling conflict in a godly way. And then lastly, I'm just going to mention, I've, I've shared this before, but I think this is so key. Right before Jesus went to the cross, he prayed for a while in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you know the last thing he prayed about? Us. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning the, the disciples right there. He says, I pray also for those who, are, who believe in me through their message, but that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and me are one, may they also be uh, in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one even as we are one. This notion of unity. I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The way that people are going to know that we are his disciples, number one is by our love for each other, but also by our unity. And we have done a phenomenal job with that over time, haven't we? The church, isn't it great? <laughs> Maybe not. And maybe we need to do some serious repenting about that and saying, Lord, what does it mean for me today to be about the unity of his church, of your church? What does that mean for me today to be so about that? If Jesus cared so much about that, that the last thing he prayed right before, right after that, the mob comes, takes him away. If that was pretty important to Jesus, might not that be something that we really care about? in this moment, in this conflict, in this situation right now, I better stop and listen to what Jesus has to say to me about that. That was one conflict, handled pretty well. But then we get to the end of the chapter and we hear this other thing that's going on between Paul and Barnabas. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. That's a good thing. They start with something good. 
Let's visit our new brothers and sisters in those towns. And, and Barnabas says, in verse whatever that is, 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. Mark was his cousin, we find out in a, at a later time. And uh, they, they said, let's do that. But Paul says, not so fast, Barnabas. Remember when we were in Pamphylia, this is going back to chapter 13, Mark kind of flew the coop. We'd only just got there. We'd gone through Cyprus, we got to Pamphylia, and he said, I'm going home. And from Paul's vantage point, he said, he deserted us. He left us. Now, we don't really know what that was about. It doesn't describe it here. Some people thought he was homesick, needed to get home. He was probably pretty young. We don't know much about Mark at that point, although we think in Mark chapter 15, we talked about the, when Jesus got arrested, there was a, a guy that ran away uh, naked because he had his, his cloak tor- torn off of him. We think that's probably Mark, the writer of that book. Um, and again, we know he's Barnabas's cousin. But Paul was, was like, nope. We're not taking him. He's not worth it. He's going to be a, a hindrance to us. He's going to be an obstacle, Barnabas. We're not taking him. And Barnabas said, no, no. <laughs> I think it's worth giving him another chance. Yeah, he had those problems, whatever they were. But I think he's at a better place now. I think it'd be a real help to us in sharing the gospel with those cities. He's ready, Paul. And Paul says, nope, we're not doing it. And it says there, it says there that Paul did not think it wise to take him. Um, they had such a sharp disagreement that, uh, that they decided to part company. That sharp disagreement is the word paroxysmos, which means a sudden attack or violent expression of a particular emotion or activity. This is a big deal. This was not a small little, yeah, I don't know, what do you think? No, this is a big deal. And, and they, they decided... To part company. I, I don't know what that was about, and I'm, I'm wary of, of, of assuming things, but from my vantage point, this was one of those times that they did, conflict was not handled well. So interestingly, Luke says, here's one conflict, and look how it played out, and here's this other conflict juxtaposed against this other one, and we go, that didn't seem to go so well. Again, this notion of authenticity of the scripture. We see things and we talk about what really happens and sometimes with just the warts. Sometimes, just like Paul, you know, we, we have warts too. And, and here's one of those times where it just, pride probably got in the way. Or maybe there was a lack of belief by Paul that God was ready to redeem Mark at that point. We're not really sure. Sometimes, you know, it feels like that. We're kind of canoeing or boating in two different directions. It feels like that. But in this particular situation, I think it felt like this between the two of them. They were not happy. Interestingly enough, that's the last we hear of Barnabas and Mark at this point in the book of Acts. This is also the last chapter where we hear of Peter. This is the last we're hearing of Peter. Exit stage left. All three of those books are now moving on. And the focus by Luke is on, the, on Paul and Silas. But even in the middle of that, a sovereign God can do pretty cool things. Instead of just having one missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, we now have Barnabas with Mark, and we have Paul with Silas, and they're able to move forward and have two different ones. In fact, Paul and Silas start an evangelism partnership that continues for years as as Luke follows them and details their particular situation. And then there's this really neat... Marvelous redemptive work that happens in Mark. And Paul, too. 
Again, like I said, you don't hear from Mark again for the rest of the, the, the book of Acts. But we find out in Colossians, um, um, which was written in AD 60, about 11 years later, um, that he, Paul writes, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, who comes to you, welcome him. So there's been a there's been a relationship rift healing that's happened there between Paul and Mark. And a few years later, um, Peter describes this in near the end of his first epistle. He says, uh, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, so does Mark, my son. Very warm language about Mark at that point. And then, oh, sorry, and then later, 1 Timothy 4.11 says, now, right near the end of Paul's life, right, just probably within a year or so, he says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in my ministry. God's doing redemptive work, right? God didn't give up on Mark. God didn't give up on Paul. Paul could have said, that's it. I'm not doing anything with these people. And you do the long, silent treatment that happens for years, right? Nope. They were both open to seeing what God was able to do in Mark's life. And apparently, whatever caused that desertion in Pamphylia some 16 years before, at this point in 2 Timothy, Paul is saying, that's my guy. I'd love to have Mark here by my side because he's, he's so useful to me. That's pretty cool healing. God can do redemptive things in people's life, right? Do you believe that? Yes. Do you believe that? All right. So some application out of this. Number one, conflict. Let me just ask you the question, in what relationships or groups are you experiencing conflict right now? And based on what we saw in this passage, what elements of conflict resolution are you needing to add or change so that you're following really what was a great example of good conflict resolution? Not just managing conflict, but resolving the conflict, going to the heart of it and really dealing with it. And part of what I want you to know is, too, that we have a real commitment to dealing with conflict here as well. Um, if you know and ever heard Rick preach in the past, you know that was really important to him, creating a culture where conflict resolution happens, and it happens now. We don't let conflict sit and sit and sit and don't deal with stuff and allow big, huge walls to grow between us. Let's deal with it now. And he was huge about that. We also define those things that are essential doctrines of the church. If you go to our website, you'll see seven doctrines that we view as essential. Well, we don't list 12, we don't list 65, we just list seven. We say these are the essentials of the faith that we believe. And we make a point, if you read that, the rest of that further down on that page, that webpage, you'll see there are non-essential elements. And we expect there to be diversity of opinion on those things, and it's okay. But on these seven, we're clear. In fact, it says this, we have seven doctrines that we feel are essential and non-negotiable at Mosaic. If any of these are removed from our beliefs, then our faith is empty and void. If they cause division to the point that someone feels they can't support them, then they should probably find another church to fellowship in. The other problem we have in the body of Christ at large is the tremendous amount of division due to doctrines that should not have essential status. Although every doctrine carries some importance and there are dedicated Christ-loving believers on every side, we simply believe you should not divide over non-essential issues. And we make that real clear. Here's the essential, here's non-essential. And we choose to live in freedom on those matters. And that's what we would view as being key to this. 
So that's one application in terms of conflict, but also in terms of trusting in God. Number one, we don't, you know, if, if you've come here at all, you hear a doctrine of grace that we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ, right? And his grace that saves us, God's riches at Christ's expense, that we take on his, in, his record and we have our record nailed to the cross with Christ. That's what we believe. We don't believe that you have to be extra good. We know that there are good works that God planned in advance for us to do. So there are things that we will live out because God calls us to do out of response and out of Christ, out of compelling from Christ's love. But it's not faith plus good works that saves us here. But are you trusting in any way that it is about your good works? That it is some facet of your faith that you have to show in order to be truly saved? We don't buy that here. And then lastly, are you choosing to believe that God can redeem anyone? That story of Mark. Those people that seem irredeemable, and we probably have a handful of people in our mind that we would say, I don't think so, God. They are so far from you, there's just no way. But God keeps doing that in Scripture time and time and time again, and Mark just being the latest one of those. And if we had you all give testimony up here of how God redeemed yourself and other people that were irredeemable, it would be a great time of, of uh, fellowship, wouldn't it? So that's what I wanted to share with you here today. That's what came out of Acts 15. How do we deal with conflict in a way that is God-honoring at all times? And, and how do we always have faith that God is at work in the people around us and stay true to that, be praying for people that we think are irredeemable, trust that God is doing a great work. I'm going to close this in prayer, and then we have an announcement. So I'll ask uh, the fellow elders to come up uh, right after the prayer. Lord, we thank you for this uh, portion of your word that you chose to capture and have kept in place for centuries so that we could follow that. We could see how conflict happens in your body and how to handle that rightly. Father, we pray at Mosaic that we would be a church that seeks unity, that loves each other well, that is humble before each other, that seeks to listen before we speak, that we are quick to soften our hearts rather than become angry. Lord, I pray that in all of our relationships that would be true and that the fruit of the Spirit would be so abundant in us, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Lord, we pray all those things and faithfulness would be something that would be just evident in us, that people would want to know what it is about you. Where's the power that, that we can live this way? Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us the ability to live well this, this week. We pray that you'd give us your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.